0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is George Robbins, and this is episode 149 for the first half of October of 2016. The topic I'm going to talk about today is Modern Flat Earth Thought, Part 2, where in this episode I'm going to focus on maps and airline flights. To get into a little bit more detail, there are two claims within the Flat Earth genre that are somewhat related for this discussion. First is that the United Nations flag shows a map that is promoted by the Flat Earth groups, except that Antarctica is missing and the Flat Earth is instead surrounded by a wreath. Because of this flag, it is a tell from those in the know, as they are required to do so that when the truth is revealed, they can say that they told us all along and we were just too stupid to pick it up and, well, go with it. I may be mixing my conspiracies a little bit here, but you get the general idea. The second claim for this episode is that airlines would necessarily want to take the shortest distance or shortest route between two points to save time and fuel and passenger anger, and flights between destinations in the southern hemisphere make no sense on a globe, but they make perfect sense on a UN flag map. As I said, these are somewhat related. I'm going to start to address the first claim without actually getting into the claim, but instead talking about map projections. This happens to be a topic that I'm very familiar with because I study planetary surfaces in my day, night, morning, and evening job. Let's, for the moment, pretend that Earth is spherical. Now, I know that's a bit of a stretch for some people, but let's go there. We have a spherical planet, but pretty much every way that we have of representing that planet is, well, flat. We have paper maps or drawings, we have flat computer screens and projectors, flat glass etchings and movies with the planet laid out flat. Therefore, we need some method to map out or to project a spherical body onto a flat object. Seems pretty straightforward, and there are a huge number of ways that people have come up with over the centuries and actually millennia to do just this. Each of the different methods have benefits and problems, and so each of them are used in different applications. For example, one of the most common map projections that I use is called equidistant cylindrical. It was invented around AD 120, and it's a system that's nearly 2,000 years old. This projection is reasonably easy to understand. Take a sphere, look at it edge on, and what you see is how you map things onto the flat surface. Lines of latitude are evenly spaced as are lines of longitude, and they are straight on the projection, they're not curved. This means that things at the equator have no distortion, but stuff near the poles look really, really stretched out horizontally. It has a nice property that distances that you measure along lines of longitude, so north-south, are correct, regardless of where you are on the map. It also has very little distortion until you get eh, poleward of about 40 degrees latitude, at least for my purposes of mapping out craters. When I need to work closer to the poles, I switch map projections, and I usually use polar stereographic. Polar stereographic is set such that either the north or the south pole is at the center of the map, lines of longitude radiate like spokes on a wheel out from the center, and lines of latitude are circles around the center. The lines of latitude are evenly spaced on the map so that... If, say, your line of 60 degrees north latitude is only 3 inches from that center point at the north pole, then your line of 30 degrees north latitude would be 6 inches from the center. Zero degrees, the equator, would be 9 inches from the center, and so on and so on. This was invented by Hipparchus in 200 BC, so it's 2200 years old. This map does not preserve area, And it does not preserve distance, but it does preserve shape, which is what is useful when I'm working near the poles. And in fact, on Wikipedia, it specifically states, this projection maps all small circles to circles, which is useful for planetary mapping to preserve the shapes of craters. So again, pretty useful for what I do. If I have to make real measurements, I use other projections, or I use my own software that I've written, which I'll talk about in the second claim about airplane flights. Perhaps the most common map projection that you'll be familiar with is the Mercator projection. This projection is probably what your maps in school used, and if you go to Google Maps, it's pretty much close to what you'll see if you zoom all the way out. It's the one that makes Greenland look bigger than the rest of North America. The projection works by ensuring that all lines of bearing, so direction, are preserved and are the same, so it's pretty useful in navigation. It stretches things out near the poles, but it tends to preserve shape, if not distance or area, which can also be a nice and useful property. It's often used in climate maps and marine charts, and it was invented in 1569 by Gerardus Mercator. Oddly enough. Another common projection in my field, as well as cosmology, like for showing maps of the galaxy or the cosmic microwave background radiation, is called the mole-wide projection, and I could be mispronouncing that. Its overall shape is an ellipse, and lines of latitude are straight, and they get closer together as you get to the poles. Lines of longitude are curved except for the one in the center, which is straight. It's a projection that distorts the shapes of things, but any area that you measure will be correct. In that case, it's called an equal area projection, and there are a couple different types of equal area projections. It was invented by Carl Mulweide in 1805. If you're interested in this, I'll link to a good resource in the show notes, which, surprise surprise, is Wikipedia. It has a really nice list of lots of different map projections, when they were created, and what their properties are. My point in going through all of this is that there are a lot of different ways to represent a three-dimensional body on a two-dimensional object. How you do it completely depends on what you want to emphasize and how you want to emphasize it, or de-emphasize it as the case may be. Which brings us, oddly enough, to the flag of the United Nations. The flag is light blue with a white design in the middle, and the white design is a map of the planet from 90 degrees north latitude to negative 60 degrees north latitude, or 60 degrees south. The projection is an azimuthal equidistant projection, which is a map projection created around AD 1000 by Abu Rahan, or... Raihan al-Biruni, and I'm just going to say um, that guy. It has the nice property that distances from whatever point is at the center are correct. But for the UN flag, it makes sense because it ensures that no one country holds prominence over another. In fact, earlier versions of the flag had a similar projection, but the USA was at the center. It was moved in later iterations just as it was also rotated to its current state and extended to negative 60 degrees south to include every country and prevent any favored position. This is really the only relatively simple map projection that can do this without severe distortions. The design also includes latitude lines at 30 degree intervals, fairly standard including my own publications, And it includes eight lines of longitude radiating from the plus 60 degree north line of latitude. These latitude and longitude lines are fairly thick, which prevents more being drawn if you want to preserve readability. And trust me, this will come up later. I'm not just reciting this stuff because I looked it all up and want to bore you. So with that all said, let's get on to some conspiracy.
1: When I was looking through the list of map projections on Wikipedia, I stumbled across a map that was identical to the flat earth map. And if you want to know, again, I'm, uh, I'll try to do it justice. If you want to know what a flat earth map looks like uh, over the radio. It's if you took your hand, if you took a globe and you put your hand on top of, a, uh, of, of the North Pole and you just squished it to where it was flat. So the North Pole became the center of the map. The continents were kind of spread out um, to, you know, towards the edges. And then the very outside edge would be Antarctica. So... I was going through the list of map projections and I run into this map called the Azimuthal or Azimuthal, um, A-Z-I-M-U-T-H-L, equidistant map. Uh, and it was, there was a lot of really interesting things about it. One, it was the only map in the list of projections that was actually endorsed by the USGS, which was uh, uh, the United States Geological Survey. And I thought, okay, that's, that's really strange. Why would the United States uh, government, you know, the, the premier ma- map makers of the world, uh, why would they be using uh, this map in, in their projection system? And then I, I looked at the origins. You know, it's like, oh, when was this map model created? It was created 1,000 years ago. And I go, that's even stranger, because 1,000 years ago, we thought the Earth was, was flat. But it was 1,000 years ago, it was created by a guy, and I won't give his long name. Uh, he's a Persian scientist named Al Baruni, um, I was going, man, it's got to be a typo. There's, there's no way, that, why, why would the United States... Uh, government be using a map uh, where the design was done by a thousand-year-old Persian scientist, and then I'm looking, and the Persian scientist. You keep following the links, and the Persian scientist, uh, NASA knows full well who this guy is. They they've got a moon crater named the Biruni crater, uh, you know, supposed supposedly on the moon, named after this guy. I was going, okay, And then to throw one more wrinkle on this map, I mean, of all the map projections, this is the one that gets the most traffic. It's got all these little little annotations next to it. And the other thing this map is known for is the exact map of the UN flag. So when you look at the UN flag, how the continents are kind of grouped at the center, that's what the Flat Earth map is.
0: There is a lot in there, but i like to give you the full quote so that you can follow it all and see how really incomprehensible it is without me interrupting. This stuff is hard enough to interpret as it is, and clearly, Mark Sargent, who's the person who you just heard, has a few issues with this map projection. First, he says that it's the only map projection that is quote-unquote endorsed by the USGS. This makes absolutely no sense and is just wrong. Uh, just as I'm not going to tell you that you should put your left sock on first or your right sock on first, the USGS is not in the habit of specifically endorsing a map projection pretty much for the exact same reasons that I talked about before. Each map projection has its own uses. It may be true that Wikipedia's list of map projections only lists a specific application by the USGS for this particular projection, but that doesn't mean that it's the only projection quote unquote endorsed by the USGS. In fact, I've been involved with publishing maps with the USGS. I have never used this projection. We've used mole-wide, sinusoidal, equidistant cylindrical, polar stereographic, and most recently, I'm involved in a mapping project over about 4% the surface of Mercury, and we're using a Lambert conformal over our mapping area because, well, for the reasons I said earlier, it represents that particular area really well with minimum distortion. Second, Mark seems to really take issue with the origins of this map projection, I don't know if there's racism involved due to his repeated mention that the creator was Persian or if it's just a general argument against antiquity, uh, the opposite of what we normally face in skepticism which is the argument from antiquity where we say, hey, this has been used for thousands of years, therefore it must be good. In this case, hey, this was invented a thousand years ago, therefore it sucks. Um, My response to this is, who cares? The reason I pointed out when and who created the different projections that I commonly use is to show that they've been really generated by a wide variety of people with a wide variety of nationalities over the course of over two millennia. When and who created it is really irrelevant for its utility. As for being a named lunar crater, that's not NASA. That's the International Astronomical Union. The name was approved in 1970 in order to honor the Persian astronomer, mathematician, and geographer Al-Biruni. In fact, this gets to the third issue where we did not think way back then that Earth was flat. In fact, Al-Biruni was able to use a very similar measurement scheme to the Greek Eratosthenes who used the same thing centuries earlier basically shadows from sticks cast at different lines of latitude in order to measure the circumference of the planet. The whole idea that people way back when thought earth was flat is very much a modern creation and consequently even if some people in power in Europe during the medieval period, maybe they happened to be religious, uh, if they thought that earth was flat the Islamic world at that time, was at the center of learning and knew quite well that Earth was spherical. Fourth, he says that this particular map projection gets the most traffic and has a lot of annotations. I have absolutely no idea what he's talking about here. It doesn't make any sense. Even if you look at uh, the number of references that each map projection has on Wikipedia, this doesn't make any sense, so let's just move on. Which actually kind of wraps it up for the flag. Uh, Oh, except this tidbit.
2: If you, uh, if you count the number of holes they've got there in the bullseye, there's exactly 33. So what they've got is a flat earth divided into 33 sections. And I'm sure you're aware that 33 is a significant occult number, especially among the Freemasons, who are the ones in charge of this whole deception. As I said, from all the way back to Pythagoras, the first Freemason who thought up this ball-earth theory through Copernicus and Galileo and Newton and uh, right up to today, Neil deGrasse Tyson, etc.
0: Really? um, My only response to that one is... (sighs) All right. On to the second claim of the episode, flight paths and airplanes in general. A very common claim made by flat Earth proponents, because they almost inevitably and universally believe that the flat Earth looks very similar to, if not exactly like, the United Nations flag, is that airplanes fly really weird routes to get from point A to point B in the southern hemisphere, which makes sense on their UN flag map, but not on a globe. So to talk about this, there are a couple points of background that I have to address first. First is one that I alluded to in the previous claim about map projections where I said that if I have to measure distances or area, I have my own software that I've written that does this. That's because it's not a simple calculation. Now, yes, if you want to travel from your house to your friend's house who's just down the road, you can approximate Earth as a flat surface with no curvature and get the same answer. But if you want to travel from, say, Saskatchewan in Canada, which I had no idea was a real place until a few years ago, uh, say you want to go from there to Melbourne, Australia, or Melbourne, Australia, approximations that work over short distances don't work anymore. The shortest distance between two points on a sphere is, is a path that is a great circle between those two points. A great circle path is defined as the intersection of a plane that goes through those two points on the surface of the sphere and the planet's center. Really, basically any path that if traced around the whole globe would cut the planet exactly in half. The equator is a great circle because it slices the planet in exactly half. Zero degrees longitude traced over the pole to 180 degrees longitude traced to the next pole is a great circle because it cuts the planet exactly in half. If you're not on the equator, like say if I'm flying from Seattle, Washington, USA to London, UK, a great circle is going to take me up on a northerly path until I get about halfway to London and then take me back south towards the UK on a flat map under almost any map projection, this looks like a ridiculously longer route. But it's not. It's just how things are. That also means that if I wanted to go from Saskatchewan to Melbourne, the fastest route would look something like an s-shape on a flat map due to my crossing the equator. As for my own software, there's a US naval technical paper authored by T. Vincenti in 1975 many years ago, but it's still good. Uh, It provides the method to chart out great circles given a starting latitude or longitude and a compass bearing if you assume the magnetic poles are aligned with the spin axes. These calculations are an integral part of a lot of what I personally do in my own research because I have to calculate distances and bearings on a sphere all the time to make sure that I measure things correctly. Similarly, Measuring areas as opposed to lengths on the sphere is also quite complicated, but that doesn't factor into airplane routes, so that may be a story for a different podcast episode. The point of this background tidbit is that if you assume there is no wind, then the most fuel and time-efficient flight path for any airplane is a great circle, barring weird weather such as a hurricane that's in your way. But, generally speaking... Airplanes don't travel precisely along great circles. Besides weather, the primary reason for this is that the routes and methods of navigation were designed around ground-based radio navigation stations. At least in the United States, you have ground stations scattered across the country that airplanes are required to pass within range of, and the range for each is very roughly 150 miles or about 250 kilometers. So it's something like a game of catch, where... Uh, Say, after a plane that I'm on leaves Denver's range, that plane is expected to fly from navigation station to navigation station as it crosses the country. Because these navigation stations very rarely align with great circle routes between two airports in the U.S.'s airspace, planes often have to take a somewhat zigzag route between the different stations. Not efficient, but that's how things were designed, and even though it's over 50 years old, there's a lot of bureaucratic... Let's just say inertia that keeps things the way they are. That's in contrast with overseas flights, or perhaps flights over more desolate areas of the planet like, I don't know, Kansas or Siberia or maybe 90% of Canada. In most of those areas, the plane can take more direct, great-circle paths between stations, and those are visible on flight trackers. Or if you're weird like me, and you can see it on the GPS tracks you keep because you have a field GPS that you leave on while you're in flight and you like to track your course. So, when I travel between Denver and Houston for an annual conference in March, looking at the tracks that I've recorded, it's pretty much straight lines between different ground stations. But... When I took a vacation to Spain this past April, my flight from Chicago, Illinois, flew over Detroit, then Montreal, hit two stations in Newfoundland, and then it's almost a perfect great circle to Frankfurt. The flight from Frankfurt to Barcelona was ridiculously circuitous, uh, which may be standard for European flights, but then as soon as my flight back from Madrid hit international waters, it's again almost a perfect great circle arc until we hit the range of the radar station near Trapassy Bay in Newfoundland. Now, a Flat Earth proponent may argue that that makes sense given the United Nations map. Okay, fine. Let's get to the actual claim now that I've belabored some of the background information about airplane flights. This one is also from the Flat Earth proponent, Mark Sargent.
1: There's certain rules that cannot be broken uh, on a flat map, and one of them is uh, there are no shortcuts when it comes to a flat map which means the plane routes in the Southern Hemisphere, Northern, Hem- Northern Hemisphere, which would be the inner circle, would be fine, but the Southern Hemisphere, the plane routes, routes would be wrong, which circles me back to how I kind of got started on this with the, uh, the German guy that, that was talking about the, the plane routes. So <clears throat> when I was looking at the plane routes in the Southern Hemisphere, there were a lot of interesting things that kept leaping out at me. Uh, one was, if you were going to hide the routes in the Southern Hemisphere, the first thing you would do is you'd make sure that you would have as few or none, if possible, uh, nonstops. So if you were flying anywhere from, say, South America to anywhere near Australia, it should just be a straight shot across the South Pacific Ocean. You know, no air to deal with, 12 hours, piece of cake. The flight, you know, uh, no, no problem. You can't find those flights most of the time. And so when I did Clue 7, which was called the Long Haul, uh, which was given, that name was given to me by a British guy who was, he was throwing me information. He, was, he and I were, were kind of collaborating on, on the data on this. The um, 95% of the flights in the Southern Hemisphere are connections. And they're weird connections. It's not like in the Northern Hemisphere where you, know, you have to go through Toledo to get to you know, somewhere in Indiana. These, these connections go really, really into strange places. And I'll give you a perfect example. Like if you're flying from Rio, to say Sydney, Australia, right, should be just a straight shot, Southern Hemisphere. Why in the world would you ever connect through Los Angeles or San Francisco or Dallas? Why would you go through the, the Northern Hemisphere at all, it, it, almost doubling your, your, your length? And, and people say, oh, well, you're picking up people. It's Like, yeah, sort of, that might make sense, except when you take, the, it, it on a globe, it's a weird arcing angle. But if you put that same plane route on a flat map, it almost turns into a perfect, either a really, really shallow dogleg or almost perfectly straight. The odds of that happening were really, really slim.
0: All right, I'm repositioning my mic a little, so hopefully the audio will be slightly better. I'm actually recording this in a hotel room, so I apologize about the audio quality in this episode. Anyway, this gets to the second piece of background information that I avoided addressing before. What's efficient for you? As a traveler, is likely not efficient for the airplane. What I mean, or the airline. Uh, What I mean is this: Let's say the airline, from experience, can only get 20 people who want to fly directly from Denver to Houston. I'm totally making up these numbers and routes, but uh, stick with me, and I am sort of based in Denver, so I'm using Denver a lot in my examples. Let's say that the airline also knows that they have 20 people wanting to go from Denver to Austin, Texas, and 20 people wanting to go from Denver to Boston, Massachusetts, and 20 people wanting to go from Denver to Los Angeles. It would be very inefficient to send out four planes, four tiny planes, or four very, very unfilled planes to four different directions from Denver with only 20 people on each plane. Therefore, what the airline is going to do is not offer a direct flight between these cities. It just doesn't make sense economically. So what they're going to do is create a hub and spoke system, like a wheel. In this hypothetical case, you would load all 80 of those people wanting to go somewhere from Denver onto a single plane and fly them to, say, a hub in Phoenix, In Phoenix, in Arizona, you then fill up a single plane to Houston with all the small groups of people from all over the country, so now that plane to Houston has 200 people instead of 20. Same for Austin, Boston, and uh, what was the other one? Uh, Who cares? uh, Oh, Los Angeles. City of the Angels. Okay. That means if we want to fly from Denver to Houston, I have to go by way of Phoenix, I have to go almost in the opposite direction from where I want to end up. I am positive that 99% or more of you have had this same experience. To give a real-world example, when I first did the two-body problem for me and my significant other for Thanksgiving travel, I flew from Denver to Detroit. So from one side of the country to the middle, it was a non-stop flight, stayed there a few days, and then flew from Detroit in Michigan to Cincinnati, Ohio. It's just one state away, but I flew by way of South Carolina, five states away. Every year since then, I've just driven from Detroit to Cincinnati, and it has taken less time and it has been significantly cheaper. As another example, in two weeks, I'm going to New York from Denver. By way of Atlanta, Georgia. Yes, I'm flying Delta, so I'm going through Delta's Atlanta hub. Or, as another example, I'm writing this episode on a plane where the route is from Denver to Chicago, by way of Baltimore. So the western part of the United States to the east coast to the middle of the country. This is a very long way of answering the issue that Mark Sargent raised. The reason that airlines don't fly many direct routes between continents in the southern hemisphere is because very very few people want those routes but the airlines definitely do fly within the southern hemispheres for uh, an example when i visited australia several years ago i took three flights within the continent after it was pointed out to me that australia is not a small country and that it was not feasible to drive Uh, also you can't drive to tasmania but beyond my own anecdotal experiences, I did some investigation beyond this basic fact of commerce. And I found a South African Airways flight that, well, had a non stop direct route from Johannesburg, South Africa to Perth, Australia. It takes nine and a half hours to get there and takes 10.75 or 10 and three quarter hours to get back. That would be impossible on a flat earth map unless the airlines broke basic laws of how they're engineered and flew two to three times faster than they can, exceeding the speed of sound in the process, which we know they can't do. That's because on a flat earth, the distance between Johannesburg and Perth is about two to three times the distance between New York and London. But a New York to London flight is about seven hours, which is fully seventy five per cent the time as opposed to thirty to fifty per cent the time or well, another possibility is that the planes in the northern hemisphere all fly slower than they're designed to, which is worse for fuel efficiency. it means they can't sell as many tickets because they can't get as many flights in, and it makes passengers really grumpy and stressed out they Uh, you know, more so than they already are because they take way too long. But this is why if you believe in a flat Earth, pretty much everything is a conspiracy, and that's how this is dismissed. Yes, I have heard flat Earth proponents say that the airline industry is heavily compensated by those in the know in order to do this very kind of thing. But there are lots of other examples of these kinds of intercontinental flights within the Southern Hemisphere. True, not nearly as many as in the Northern Hemisphere, but there are plenty in the Southern Hemisphere. For example, South African Airways also flies directly from Johannesburg to Sao Paulo in Brazil, also to Buenos Aires. Qantas, the Australian airline, flies directly from, well, from or to Johannesburg to Perth, as well as Johannesburg to Sydney. They also fly directly from Sydney, Australia, to Santiago in Chile, or to again Buenos Aires in Argentina all direct Southern Hemisphere intercontinental flights. Oh, but wait, Mark Sargent has an excuse for even that.
1: People after Clue 7, they were saying, well, you know, we found a nonstop. They, everyone kept sending me this Qantas Flight 64. And there was like, I think like five nonstops in the entire Southern Hemisphere, which that alone should raise alarm bells. But people were saying, but people again want to hold on to the globe. So they were saying, no, this, proved, this, this proves uh, round Earth if, if there's these nonstops. So I started paying attention to the nonstops. There's, um, uh, the GPS system gets fed into various databases, but it's all based off the same system. GPS, of course, the Department of Defense the United States built it, and, which went online in about 1995. And I was watching these flights, and I was, and I was watching the, the, the Southern Hemisphere, and again, you can go into any of these flight trackers, and the, the Southern Hemisphere uh, oceans will be empty. And... I start watching some flights, and I'm waiting for these non-stops, and there's nothing, I'm seeing nothing. And so finally I say, wait, well, where are the freaking planes? All Any of them, even the connections. And as a plane starts going, leaving, let's say, from South America on its way to Australia or back and forth, it gets about 150 miles, 250, or 200 miles off the coast, and it just disappears off the GPS system entirely. It's going, that's odd. And they all start doing that. And not only do they drop off visually, but if you look at the individual plane records, the plane records change to, from latitude and longitude to approximate or estimated. Basically, the plane doesn't exist in the GPS system anymore. And then it flies its route, whatever route that is. And then an hour before touchdown, it blinks back on just off the coast of where it's, it's going to land, and it comes back on it lands. Everybody's happy. But the route cannot be proven. And... That that's when you know there's only so many uh, coincidences I can see, and I was going, oh, that's very very clever. It's like if you don't want to show people how the route is being taken in the southern hemisphere, you just disappear all the routes in the southern hemisphere.
0: <sighs> okay, there is a heck of a lot in there, so I want to quickly respond to everything but the meat of why I played that clip. First. He's right. There are very few intercontinental flights in the Southern Hemisphere, but there are a huge number of intracontinental flights in the Southern Hemisphere, like Melbourne to Sydney. Second, he does not know how GPS works. The GPS receiver gets timing information from satellites. It knows where the satellites are, and based on the time it really is versus when that signal it's receiving says the time is when the satellite sent it, it can figure out the distance to that satellite just by knowing general relativity, special relativity, as well as the position of the satellite. Get at least four satellites, and you know your position in 3D space. Because we're on a sphere, or... In the air above a sphere, you need at least four satellites. But the important part is that this is entirely passive on the part of your GPS receiver. No government intervention, no US government intervention, or processing is required. Third, as I've already mentioned, you can't fake the time it takes for these flights to happen, and you can't fake the speed of the aircraft. If the Southern Hemisphere flights were to suddenly increase in speed as soon as they got off the tracking system, everybody would know because they would feel the acceleration. Or, if Northern Hemisphere flights were all traveling at 30% the speed of Southern Hemisphere flights, again, you would know it. Which really gets us to the main part of this claim that I wanted to discuss, in part because listener Adam D. wrote in on September 19th asking about it, and that's this idea of flights disappearing off the tracking system. And you'll note, I did not say the GPS system as Mark did. That's because there's no such thing, at least not yet. It's interesting that Mark stated that these planes disappear about 200 miles off the coast of whatever continent they're leaving, and then they reappear at about the same distance from the coast of whatever continent they're getting to. That just so happens to be the distance I mentioned before for the range of those ground tracking stations. That's because the only way these tracking stations know, and therefore the only way these flight tracking internet software applications know where these flights are, is that the plane reports to the station and then the station confirms it by radar or whatever. Most planes usually do have a GPS, and so they constantly know where they are. But the only way that information gets to the ground, and then to the internet, is that they're in sight and in contact with a ground station. And the ground station specifically pings the plane, and the plane's transponder responds with a lot of information, including the information about the GPS. But, when you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, or the Atlantic Ocean, or the Indian Ocean, or wherever, and there is no station to report to, no one but those on the plane know where you are. Incidentally, this is why plane crashes at sea are so hard to track, because there isn't a tracking system in place. That's also why a lot of safety experts and politicians are pushing for a better satellite-based system, but it's expensive, and no one wants to pay for it. And so we are left not only with a seriously out-of-date system that costs time and fuel due to zigzag paths over land, but also really weird conspiracies and also, unfortunately, unresolved tragedies over the ocean. Oh, and by the way, you may remember that I said the limit for these ground stations is around 150, 200, 250 miles Coincidentally, if you recall the discussion from episode 145 and the attempted clarification in 147 about your horizon line and how far you can see, this is just a little short of how far a plane can see at a comfortable cruising altitude of about 35,000 feet. If the ground station is in a valley, or there's a hill in the way, or something else, that reduces the range, which is why the 150 miles is the number that's usually given to be safe. Nice how these numbers kind of line up and how everything fits together, as we would want it to. Beyond the discussion of flight routes, there are other flat Earth claims related to airplane flights. First up in this series is Eric Dubay.
2: Here's a good question. Why don't pilots catch on to this fact? If, if the Earth was truly a sphere, 25,000 miles in circumference, curveting 8 inches per mile squared... A pilot who wanted to simply maintain their altitude at a typical cruising speed of 500 miles per hour would have to constantly dip their nose downwards and descend 2,777 feet over half a mile every minute. Otherwise, without this compensation, in an hour's time, the pilot would find themselves 166,666 feet. 31.5 miles higher than expected. You just end up flying off into outer space if you weren't constantly dipping your nose down to fly around the ball.
0: This is one of those claims that really kind of falls into the category of not even wrong. It's just kind of silly. Uh, You fly to keep the horizon level and your altimeter steady. You fly to stay in the same level of air, or layer of air. You are flying relative to Earth's gravity, not relative to an imaginary point in the solar system. You fly your nose up or down as required to maintain that altitude. Next.
2: Now we have airplanes, which you can go easterly or westerly and if the earth and the atmosphere are spinning 1000 miles per hour east all the way all the time as they say then a westbound plane should be well, well an eastbound plane should never reach its destination if it was going 500 miles per hour and the earth is spinning and the atmosphere is spinning a thousand miles, your destination should come up behind you before you ever reach it, right? And then destinations going the opposite way are gonna take far, far longer than they they do. You can check flight times, and they're always within a half hour, hour, a couple hours, no matter what direction you're going to or from, but if the Earth was actually spinning at the rate that they say it was, flight times would be totally different.
0: I'm going to talk more about this in a few minutes, but for now, I'm going to just say that the atmosphere at the ground travels at the same speed as the ground. If it didn't, you would end up feeling, uh, you know, that claimed 1,000 mile an hour wind as soon as you stepped outside. But with that said, there is wind. Wind happens for two primary reasons on Earth. One is uneven heating by the sun. The sun heats something up, there is now a disequilibrium, and a wind forms to try to make everything even. Uh, kind of like if there is a significant temperature difference uh, between your inside of your house or apartment or whatever and outside, then as soon as you open the door, you're going to feel a breeze coming inside or going outside, depending on which one is warmer. There's a lot more physics to this, but it's unimportant for this story. Just keep in mind that uh, temperature disequilibrium results in a pressure disequilibrium, which results in a wind to try to even things out. The second part is Coriolis force, where objects on a rotating sphere tend to be deflected from the direction of motion by moving towards the pole. That means if Earth is spinning such that a point in the northern hemisphere is moving from west to east, such that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, that point is going to be deflected to the north pole, or to the right. In the southern hemisphere, that point will be deflected to the south pole, or to the left. For this discussion, it's not important for me to get into the details as to why this happens, but it's important to mention the effect because it also affects the winds. And those factors together make up our weather patterns, along with topography, bodies of water versus land, etc., etc., etc. The point is that there is wind. So, if we did not have a star... And we did not have topography, and perhaps if we uh, were a ridiculously slowly rotating planet, then our atmosphere would almost be perfectly stationary relative to the ground, and it would move with the ground. But since that is not the situation, we do have motion in the atmosphere, and because we're a big planet with lots of things going on, we have a lot of complicated weather patterns. And... This is a case where I think Eric caught himself giving away the answer. Flight times are different, depending on which direction you're traveling. You can look at flight times yourself, so in this case I'll just use a few personal ones since I've recorded several dozen of my flights. I've done a lot of travel over the last two years between Denver and Baltimore, which is about 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers, and it's almost due east to due west, uh, or vice versa. Over the 10 flights back and forth that I've recorded, going east has consistently taken about 2 hours 55 minutes to 3 hours and 5 minutes. Coming back west has consistently taken about 3 hours 30 minutes to 3 hours 55 minutes. The reason is that going east in North America, if you have prevailing winds pushing you along, it's called a tailwind going west, it's the opposite, and it's called a headwind. So when you have winds pushing you along, it's going to take less time than if you have winds pushing against you. Now, this doesn't necessarily prove nor disprove that Earth is flat or spherical, but it does completely shoot down what Eric was talking about, Um, though it's probably not good for me to use the term shoot down in a discussion about airplanes. I just want to wrap up this episode, or at least this main segment topic, with a bit of a gratuitous quote from both Mark Sargent and Eric Dubay. Although Flat Earth proponents rarely get along and rarely agree really on much of anything other than the basics, they do agree on this, and I thought it a good set of ideas, well, bad set of ideas, good set of examples, to end on. First up is Mark Sargent.
3: Earth rotates at about 1,060 miles at the equator, if you believe mainstream science. And it's also spinning around the sun at about 60,000 miles an hour. Combine those two, you know, the fact that the solar system is moving, that's a lot of speed. But 1,000 miles an hour, it does some interesting, interesting things because science has to uh, deal with uh, some, some, some questions that people, you know, the common person on the street is going to ask. One is, uh, okay, how is the atmosphere dealing with the fact that we're spending at a thousand miles an hour? Is the atmosphere going with us? And, you know, is, is gravity locking down the atmosphere? It, if it is, is it also, uh, you know, locking down the oceans? And then you also have that weird thing about the planes. Because people brought up, now I didn't bring it up in the clues because I, I, you know, I tried to leave as much math and numbers out of the clues as possible because I tried to, you know, make sure that Joe Lunchbox on the street would be able to figure it out. And that was, but it's an interesting question. And that is, if you have a plane that goes, you know, the plane's either going, if you're going east to west or west to east, it's either going with the spin or it's going against the spin. So a plane going from like Los Angeles to New York. Is gravity Holding, you know, because you're saying, it, shouldn't the Earth be, when it gets up to a certain height and speed, shouldn't the Earth be moving? Shouldn't be escaping some of the gravitational forces of the Earth? You know, if it's spinning, you know, well, up in North America, to be 700 miles an hour. But shouldn't that hundreds of miles an hour th- be factoring in there? And as mainstream scientists say, well, no, no, gravity's keeping the plane, it's relative, and it's and it's keeping the plane going. I'm going, yeah, but it's doing it both ways? it's 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 locking it down with and against the spin it's it's really, really interesting, and you know it's it's not a satisfactory answer for a lot of you know from mainstream science again, the burden of proof is on them
0: there's a lot in there, including some stuff I've already talked about a question about whose burden it is to back something up a straw man on scientists claims uh, some things that are just totally incomprehensible, et cetera, et cetera but the root underlying thought in that one minute, 45 second statement is relative motion and common sense. This is the same thing that Eric Dubé does in what I've termed argument from gut. It's a bit long and it starts out with the host playing devil's advocate. Like we're told
4: that the earth is spinning at a thousand miles per hour, which is awfully fast, but yet let's say a helicopter cannot just hover In the air for 12 hours, you know, start in St. Louis, Missouri, hover for 12 hours and land in China with the earth spinning below it. And that is what, you know, I would first think would be the situation. But then we're told because we're in the sphere, it all moves relative to itself and you don't notice those changes. And see, I'm not a physicist, I'm not a pilot. And so it's hard for me to really play devil's advocate for their position. But I think about if you're in a speeding car going ninety miles an hour down the highway, you can play catch with the passenger and it feels like you're stationary, or like if an ant is crawling around on your dashboard, whether it's going with the grain of the car or with, or against, it doesn't really notice that effect. so it's like um you know, I guess I would think that the atmosphere would have the same effect as the encapsulation of that vehicle moving at a fast speed. To the people inside of it, they don't notice. And I guess that's the argument. But do you find do you find flaws with that argument? Yeah, cuz once again,
2: it's explaining away your common sense and your experience, which is that you're not moving whatsoever. And so they say, oh, "Yes, you are moving, silly, but you're just moving at a, such a constant velocity that you don't notice it whatsoever." Now, even if you're in the, the best Rolls Royce over the best tar, uh, you know, smoothly going, you close your eyes, I can still tell I'm moving. And that's not going a thousand miles per hour. That's just going 50 or whatever we're, we're talking about here. Even in an elevator, just an elevator going up, I can feel that. I have a, a really sensitive stomach. So, I mean, I can tell and I get sick if, you know, if I'm doing some sort of motion that's anything on par with what the Earth is supposedly doing. And so, isn't that weird that uh, just because it's a perfect constant velocity that my stomach's able to handle that, but just uh, a a little bit of a elevator malfunction, and and then I'm ready to, you know. So these things don't make any sense. They, they just want to explain away your common sense with these kind of arguments. And so, like you said, if you were in a helicopter, you should be able to just go up, wait for the ball earth to spin underneath you and land at your destination. But of course, the atmosphere spins with the ball earth, so that doesn't happen. But we can prove that that's not the case either, because now we have airplanes
0: That led into the quote that I already addressed about airplanes traveling east versus west and then taking different amounts of time. The reason I wanted to play both of these clips is because it once again gets to the question of your common sense. For all practical purposes for you, in your everyday life, you are not generally moving and certainly you are not on a spinning planet. And even if this does factor into your daily life, you still don't feel it. However, the excuse Eric gave is just silly, which makes me wonder if he's one of those people who just says this stuff because he wants to be a jerk, or if he really believes it. But his true beliefs and his motivations here are irrelevant. What is relevant is that he gave the exact answer in his response. Two answers, actually. First, to the host's question about a helicopter, it is the atmosphere that he ridiculed. But it's also your own motion, so let's dissect what I mean by that. If you stand outside, do you feel the air whipping by you at 1,000 miles an hour? Or, if you can't do the math in your head, about 1,600 kilometers per hour? I didn't think so. That fact that you don't feel that proves that the air is moving, or not moving, with the same speed as you are moving, or not moving. Therefore, anything that's embedded within the air and not touching the ground gets that same benefit or that same motion. The second part of this is that even if I were on some body in the solar system without an atmosphere, like, say, uh, Ariel, a moon of Uranus, and I jumped really, really high and slowly came back to the ground, I still would land almost exactly where I jumped off. The reason is that because I'm standing on aerial, I now have the same velocity that that position on aerial does. The same spin. If I jump, I still have that same spin unless something affects me to remove that spin motion. Now, it does get a little bit more complicated as you move away from the spin axis. Let's ignore that. We're approximating here to make a point. So, with that point made... <laughs> It really is those two things together on Earth that means that you can't just take off vertically, hover, and land in a completely different spot. The second answer that he gave that's correct is that because you don't have any net acceleration, meaning that your velocity is not changing, you cannot tell if you're moving. I happen to be writing this episode, as I already mentioned, while I'm on a plane flight from Denver to Baltimore. I'm one of those nerds, again, I've talked about this already in this episode, that I have a field GPS with me. And looking at it right now, now as I'm writing this, not now as I'm recording it, I am traveling at an average speed of 875 kilometers per hour, or about 540 miles per hour. Again, I say this as I wrote it, not as I'm recording it. That is, of course, relative to the ground. I felt the acceleration when we took off, going from 0 to over 100 in under a minute. But once we stopped accelerating and reached a constant speed, once we stopped climbing and reached a constant altitude, and once we stopped banking and reached a constant velocity, because velocity is speed and direction, now that I'm in the middle of the country, the only way that I know that I'm moving is to look outside of the plane or feel the tiny, tiny, tiny bumps. Fortunately, they're tiny. Those bumps are tiny accelerations, little permutations or perturbations on my constant velocity. If I were in a perfectly smooth flying aircraft and did not have a window, there is absolutely no way that I could tell if I'm moving if I were at a constant velocity. And it's the same thing with the Earth. But none of this is really necessarily intuitive. It might be to a physicist, but that's only because a physicist has spent years of their life learning that their everyday experience is not necessarily the underlying process of how the world works. And again, that's why skepticism isn't necessarily easy. Pseudoscience tends to prey on common sense or easily made misconceptions, which is why a mind willing to learn and investigate and explore is the only way to combat it. There are three additional mini-segments for this episode. Uh, the first one, logical fallacies. There were several logical fallacies in this episode, including a straw man, argument against antiquity, and argument from the gut, or perhaps more formally, the argument from an anecdotal, um, anecdotal experience. So what I'm going to talk about in a little bit more detail is the argument against antiquity. In this case, uh, it's really not one of those common logical fallacies because, as I said during the main segment, this is usually an argument from antiquity. We most often see this in the alternative medicine ideas where they say, well, acupuncture or herbalism or naturopathy or any of these other things have been used for hundreds or thousands of years and therefore they must be good, right? Well, no, not necessarily. All because something has been around for a long time does not mean that it's good. One could look, for example, at, say, poison ivy. That's been around a very long time. Most people would agree poison ivy is not a good thing. Or, In this particular episode, it was the argument against antiquity. In this case, it was because this map projection has been around for a thousand years, that must mean something weird is going on with it, and it must point to a conspiracy. Why else would they be using this map projection? Uh, To me, as I said during the main segment, that really makes less sense than even the more common form of the argument from antiquity. So, I don't know why he made it, I don't know what he was going for, it was just kind of weird, but it was a good reason and opportunity to talk about this particular logical fallacy. For the second segment, or second small mini-segment, in this episode is feedback, and it is a correction. Jesse, and then about a dozen other listeners, sent in a correction on what would happen inside of a sphere when I talked about this in the Hollow Earth According to David Icke episode number 147. I incorrectly stated that if you are inside of Earth, then you would not be pulled to the inner surface of the shell. Instead, you would be pulled towards the center. That is incorrect. The shell theorem holds that any particle inside of a perfectly symmetric sphere would experience an Even force of gravity everywhere, such that if you placed yourself anywhere inside of a sphere, you would stay there. David Icke is therefore still wrong, but my explanation of what would happen was not correct. Jesse also wanted me to clarify what would happen with a compass at a magnetic pole. The explanation that I gave you was a practical one. Uh, You're supposed to hold a compass parallel to the ground, and in that case, your compass needle can't point up or down. But it is true that if you knew where the magnetic pole was, and you held your compass vertically, the needle would align to the field. The reason that I didn't go into that detail is because unless you are at a specific point, there is still going to be a horizontal component. And because of the way most compass needles work, it would be very difficult to know if when you're holding it up or down, that needle is sticking simply due to friction or the actual magnetic field direction. So there's the practical explanation, and then there's the 100% totally correct explanation. I gave you practical before, now I'm giving you the 100% or 99.99% almost totally correct explanation. Finally, the third mini-segment at the end here are announcements. Uh, There's really just one announcement for this episode. I want to thank one of my pilot friends, Michael, for helping me to write the section of this episode about airplanes. I was pretty sure that I was mostly correct in what I said. But he uh, generously and with very, very little time, only about 19 hours, got back to me with a few corrections before I recorded so that hopefully there will be fewer corrections sent in for this episode, or maybe even none at all. So with that said... That wraps up this topic for the 149th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook post, page, whatever for the podcast, or you can even tweet me, at pseudoastro is the tweet, Twitter, whatever for the podcast. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice every little bit helps if you liked it or every big bit helps too if you liked it also tell people